on his schedule on paper, it says he has English language arts, but really he doesn't. And so that's a violation of his civil right. He gets sent to school to then to go work on a computer, a separate program. Nobody's monitoring that. There weren't any goals and objectives tied to that. And ultimately, when was he receiving English language arts, especially if he's learning English as a new language? So, you know, it's so sort of like these things are happening and the teacher had, you know, all the best intentions to say, here's extra time for him to work on something else. But there was no support, no guidance, no goals, no outcomes. And really, he was not participating with general ed and with support. Welcome to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores the world of English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Each episode, we bring you voices from across the ELL community to discuss the issues that matter most. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. What are the civil rights of English learners and how can schools sometimes unintentionally violate them? How can civil rights issues affect EL reclassification rates, access to advanced courses, and more? Why do violations happen and how can schools avoid them? We discuss these questions and much more with Dr. Ayana Cooper. Dr. Ayanna Cooper is an author, keynote speaker, and advocate for culturally and linguistically diverse learners. She is the author of Creating and Sustaining Equitable Schools with English Learners, co-editor of Black Immigrants in the United States, Essays on the Politics of Race, Language, and Voice, and co-author of Evaluating All Teachers of English Learners and Students with Disabilities, Supporting Great Teaching. Her projects involve providing technical assistance internationally and in the U.S. to state departments of education, school districts, and nonprofit organizations. Dr. Cooper recently returned from an English language specialist project in Kuwait. Before we get started with our conversation with Dr. Ayanna Cooper, just a quick reminder that you can stay connected with us by joining our EL community at elevationeducation.com slash EL community. There you can leave comments about this episode and others. You can also engage with great content like our Whiteboard Wednesday short video series, blog posts, and articles. Finally, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This will help us continue bringing you the best topics and guests on Highest Aspirations. As always, thanks for listening and be sure to visit us for all the show notes and lots of other episodes on elevationeducation.com slash elcommunity. Here's our conversation with Dr. Ayanna Cooper. Dr. Ayanna Cooper, thanks so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. Hi, thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Yeah, I'm glad to have you here. We've been uh, talking about this topic for quite a while, and I'm glad to finally discuss it. So I want to start this conversation um, by trying to get your reaction to an observation that I have. Um, and I've thought a lot about it since our conversation. Much of your work focuses on student civil rights, particularly those of vulnerable demographics like English learners. But in my experience as a teacher and now sort of in this role, civil rights isn't really something that we discuss um, in like PD and in, in forms like these. They're talked about in social studies classes, but not so much in that way. Do you, do you see it that way? And if so, why do you think that is? And if not, I'd love to hear your argument against it. Sure. Uh, yeah, I also find that interesting. And that's uh, a large part of, of the reasons why I've really 
um, try to push push that piece uh, back to the forefront of the work that we do. So the rights that protect English learners uh, actually grew out of the civil rights movement. And so when we either address it briefly or not at all, I don't believe we're giving educators the full context um, of the work that we do and that they're engaging in as well. Yeah, definitely. And I love how you mentioned address it briefly or not at all, because I feel like that's what it is. Maybe it's in a handbook uh, that's given out, um, but it's never really like, in my experience, at least deliberately kind of called out. So I think you're doing really important work that way. Thank you. Yeah, and I want to talk about another kind of uh, quote that 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 I read somewhere from you. You may have told me or I may have read it. I'm not sure I have it written here. It says, um, you said, I don't think anyone wakes up and says, I'm going to violate my students' civil rights today, um, which, which I totally agree with. Um, no teacher wants to do that. But those violations are happening. Um, why is that? Well, you know, again, yeah, that no one says, you know, I really need to get that done today. You know, probably before lunch, I need to get <laughs> violations complete. You know, no one, nobody says that. We don't think that. But, you know, due to either misinformation, misunderstanding or misconceptions, it happens, you know, more often than it than it really needs to. And so that's why the work I do is really framed around um, the civil rights issues and, and how, you know, the federal guidance, you know, kind of gives us some some um, some support around what that should look like for students, right? Or how to avoid, if you will, uh, violating the, the rights of, 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 of your students. So once educators know better, I like to believe that we do better. So how can we bring um, more awareness and then application to program models, how students are identified, the types of professional learning we engage our staff members in? How are we partnering with parents? How are we keeping them abreast of the whole process, right? What's happening when students are in general ed classes and, and what kinds of supports are they being offered or not? So um, to me, it, it should be at the forefront and laced throughout the conversations mm -hmm. versus like as an introductory slide and then we move on. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great way to put it. You just gave us a really wonderful preview with all those things that you just listed about what we're going to get into over the course of the next half hour or so with, with program models, IDing student, identifying students, professional development, parents, et cetera. But before we do that, before we get into that, could you, I'm putting you on the spot a little bit here, but could you give us an example of like a way that a teacher or an, or an administrator or anybody could kind of slip into this model or this 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 mode where they violate a student's civil rights sort of by accident you mentioned before lunch like is there an example of how that happens sort of accidentally uh, over the course of a day or a month or a school year sure so one particular um uh example comes to mind um, there's a middle school student he was uh in seventh grade he spoke arabic he was an english learner he was retained I'm not sure of all the details, but he was repeating when I met him and his teachers, you know, he was um, retained and repeating seventh grade for the second time. Uh, very bright student. Um, but again, English was uh, a new language for him mm -hmm. uh, in his English language arts class. Every day, his teacher would send him out of the class to go to the library and to work on the computer. So maybe that was playing some games maybe it was working you know on a on a 
technology. Well, you know, could, that can certainly mean a lot of things working. Sure. So he has to go. So everyone else stays in English language arts and he goes to the media center. And when he would go to the media center, he would go work on the computer. And it was so interesting because he was explaining to me that that's what he does every day. But he had this kind of questioning in his voice, like almost asking, like, is this what I should be doing? And so <laughs> one of the first things I asked his teacher to do, you know, after she explained, well, you know, I'm teaching seventh grade English language arts. He's not proficient in English. I'm really not sure how to help him. So I figured he could use that extra time to, you know, work on a computer program. And, you know, I, I said to her, well, you know, you are his English language arts teacher. And, you know, in a sense, you're neglecting um, him an opportunity to participate in your class. And one of the first things that I ask you to do is to not send him out and let's kind of look at the next couple of units that, you're, that you'll be teaching and let's talk about ways to, that we can support him. And so right. she agreed and I just thought, huh, you know, how many weeks had that been happening? Um, you know, on his schedule on paper, it says he has English language arts, but really he doesn't. And so that's a violation of his civil right. He gets sent to school to then to go work on a computer, a separate program. Nobody's monitoring that. There weren't any goals of and objectives tied to that. And ultimately, when was he receiving English language arts, especially if he's learning English as a new language? Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's so like these things are happening and the teacher had, you know, all the best intentions to say, here's extra time for him to work on something else. But there was no support, no guidance, no goals, no outcomes. And really, he was not participating with general ed and with support. So that's one of the um, examples that, that comes to mind quite frequently. Yeah, that, that's a great example. And it really sets the stage for the rest of the conversation. I'll, I'll take one key thing out of it. And that is what you said, that the teacher there is, I think, probably has the best intentions, is not probably sure how to work with this particular student, thinks that this um, kind of alternative might be a better approach. And perhaps, perhaps in her mind, it is because she doesn't have the capacity or the knowledge or the skills to work with these students. And that's what we're going to get into is that, you know, when we frame this as, um, you know, civil rights issues and just and just understanding that these students have as much of a right as anybody else to access the curriculum, regardless of language um, strength or language, uh, you know, ability. Um, how do we put programs in place that allow teachers like that to keep that student in the class? And, you know, the gold standard to make that student an asset, to make that student be a part of the class that that, it, that is going to help others learn in many different ways. So, so let's get into that, the day-to-day. -day. When, when we ask school leaders about program models of instruction in their schools here at Elevation, or I ask in the podcast, there tend to be like a wide variety of answers. Sometimes even in the same school building, certainly in the same districts, there's, there's a lot of variety. So the first question is thinking about that teacher and that particular student, how do we level set on, uh, you know, models of instruction and making sure that there's consistency and not only consistency, but also um, an understanding and the ability to serve students like the one we just were talking about. Sure, sure. And so, you know, first of all, I'd like to kind of zoom out a little bit and, and, and not just focus on that one teacher, but really kind of zoom the lens out and say, what's happening, you know, here at this school as a community of learners, right? Mm -hmm. So, this student was sent to the media center. And then my next question was, well, when the media specialist sees him every day, what was, you know, what was she thinking about? Like, what was, what was her kind of role in this? Did she ever question what was he doing there and how might she be a, a support? So it's kind of looking at 
the big picture, which is getting at, you know, who are your communities of, of educators? Who are your community of learners? What's the big picture? What's happening? And how can we, um, you know, really have a shared sense of responsibility, if you will, around supporting all the students in our building? Um, so th that's kind of how I think about folding everyone in. It's just not one teacher's responsibility. It's not just the department of the um, the responsibility of the ESL department to, you know, support that student, but really uh, a, a collective sense of we're all here for the betterment of all the students that we have. Yeah, I mean, I think that's crucial, like having a community, but, but in order to do that, right, you need to have a program in place um, and the the necessary knowledge and skills in place for all teachers to be able to work with all students, which happens in some places and doesn't happen in others. Correct. And so I guess that we're kind of getting at you know, the question of what is your program model? And, you know, even more importantly, is the program model responsive or reactive? Yeah. And so sometimes we have program models that are really set up on, we've always done it this way, that, that frame of thought. And then other times we have program models that are a lot more responsive to the students that they have. And so how can we, you know, maybe meet in the middle um, because I understand the, the dynamics of how districts works and, you know, the level of autonomy a building leader may or may not have. But ultimately, you know, who can answer that question, right? And if you can't answer that question, where is the guidance? Where do you go to if someone were to ask you what program model is in place? What's happening at this middle school for this student and what types of support um, are your English learners receiving or what are their options? And then the next piece is how is that communicated to stakeholders? How is that communicated to parents, right? They're trusting that their children are with us all day. They're in school all day. They would like to believe we are doing the absolute best we, we can with their children. Um, and how is that communicated to them? And do they understand that process as well? Right. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned that, uh, that kind of we've always done it this way piece. I certainly saw that for, for years. And it's just, a, you know, education is one of those things where everybody uh, who is a teacher in general has been through it and therefore has sort of seen how it works. And usually it's worked for those people and it's hard for them to kind of get that entrenched um, sort of, uh, you know, perception of what education is out of their heads. I'm definitely guilty of that. I mean, the first when I was 22 years old, I started teaching Spanish. And the first thing I thought was, how did my Spanish teacher teach Spanish to me when it really wasn't that effective? Um, <laughs> right, right. You know, so we got we to gotta get that out of our heads and, and get into it. Mine, I love how you called it a more responsive um, uh, method of, of, of looking at, at the programs that we have in place. The other piece of this, of the EL puzzle here and the EL sort of success story um, is reclassification rates. And you know, research has shown, not surprisingly, that school leaders, you just mentioned school leaders, with a strong knowledge of ELs and, and EL education, have higher reclassification rates among their students than others do. So I'm curious, as a consultant working in schools, how do you go about initiating conversations with school leaders who may not be as knowledgeable about ELs as we would like and who are sort of not able to make those adjustments or, or create that responsive environment? Do you bring in that, that civil rights piece and is it effective? Absolutely, absolutely. And I like to use the language uh, around students you refer to them as being reclassified. I like to to use the term, um, you know, reach proficiency in English, Way right? Better. And so, <laughs> and, and then yes, and so and so, when asking, you know, a random group of school leaders, um, you know, do you know what your state's exit criteria is? Um, about a third of them did not know, or they thought they knew. And so, when I presented that data back to them. 
I had the yellow as not sure or no, I don't. And then I had the green, the, the, the you know, one third that did know in the green. And I said, well, which school would you like to go to, right? <laughs> would you like to go to a school where the school leader is aware of, of these these um, you know goals and outcomes or, or not so sure? So we kind of framed it around, sometimes we just don't know what we don't know, right? Mm-hmm. And so we do have to understand what that process is like. And the ultimate goal is that we are there to help students become proficient in English and in best case scenario, maintain and excel in their native language, right? Like, so that, that, is, the, that is really the ultimate goal that we're striving for. Um, and so if school leaders don't know what those, you know, kind of big picture outcomes are, we have to have some support and conversations around that. And then how do we share that again with our school community? Students aren't identified and in programs just indefinitely. They do have, you know, um, some goals tied to them. And how are we working to make sure we're moving toward those goals? Right. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. I mean, you know, it, it, it's it's such a tricky piece, and and the, the reclassify is a term, by the way, that that I'm not a huge fan of either. It's just such a common term. But when re, they reach proficiency in English and also maintain their 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 native language is also uh, crucial as well. You know, we're starting to kind of get into the data piece here in order to identify their students as ELs and eventually um, see who's reached proficiency, rather than use the word reclassify again. Sure. Um, sure. The, the the school leaders need to be well versed in in data, and that bridge between data and action, in my experience, can be really difficult to to cross. Now, you know, as as a as an employee of Elevation, I know obviously there are tools out there that that make this work far easier. But how are school leaders in general sort of taking on this task of not only understanding the uh, policies, but also taking the data and making it work for them in a way that is going to result in action. And that action being, hopefully, more students are proficient in English and maintaining their home language. So it's first going to require school leaders to, we talk about data-driven instruction. So I'd like to know which data are they looking at and why. And in the work that I do, you would be surprised at how many or how few um, school leaders actually have a depth of knowledge around um, English language proficiency data, and and then and then weaving that into the big picture, right? Although it's just one data point, it's an important data point. So we can't analyze ELA trends and math trends without you know being cognizant that you know those assessments were designed for native English speaking students. Mm-hmm. However, <laughs> with our population, we have non-native English speakers taking those exams. So we have to have a, a space and a place to really look at English language proficiency data as part of the big picture with student achievement. So that's the first piece. The second piece would be, um, you know, how are we then framing it around where the students were, where the students are, and where we want the students to go? So those are like the three questions that I ask. So it's not just looking at the data for the sake of acknowledging it, but really saying, okay, what's, what's our past trend been here in regards to X, Y, or Z? And then have we reached that or where are we going in our program models in line with that, right? So if we have a program model that we believe in, do we have evidence or do we have data to show that that's the right program model for the students that we have? And then, you know, more importantly, where are we going? What are our goals and objectives for this particular cohort of student? And are we on track to get there? Yeah, and that's a lot more complicated than it may seem, particularly if I'm in a district that all of a sudden has an influx of, you know, English learners from one particular place or lots of different places. That 
where we were question and where we are question and where we want to go question becomes like really complicated because where we were maybe two, three years ago and where we are and where we want to go could be like vastly different things. Is that, are you, are you seeing that in general or is that just in those districts with like a big influx of English learners? No, I'm actually seeing that. And that's going back to why I said, are we being, you know, um, responsive or reactive, right? So we may set out our three-year, you know, school plan with one set of goals and objectives for our English learners. But then lo and behold, you know, our newcomer population increases by 20%. Mm -hmm. And we didn't have a newcomer program before. So how do we either set one up, develop one, or at least meet the needs of those students? Sure. Yeah. And that, and, and, uh, you know, it, it's, that's the situation almost ever, even in these places where, you know, I mean, we work, I've worked closely with places like Broward County and Miami-Dade, and obviously those districts have, um, you know, well-established uh, EL programs, um, but other, other districts and other places don't. And, you know, this, this, this blends right into our whole conversation where teachers are obviously always trying to do the right thing, but in many of the districts, particularly the smaller districts that we work with, um, they, I think you said at one point, they don't know what they don't know. So before diving into all that data, I feel like having that plan of where we were, where we are and where we want to go and really looking at it as like a, a progress mindset is, is crucial. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, you know, what tools and resources do you have to make sure that everyone has access to that information? So the way you present or talk about data, maybe in a, you know, data meeting could be vastly different than what you show at a parent meeting, but you're being, you're being cognizant of the different audiences that still have to have access to the data. That's really, really important. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. And actually that, 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 leads right into my next question, which is around parents and, you know, family engagement, which we talked, you talked a little bit about, or Ulysses mentioned earlier, um, you know, the, the, the school staff who, who kind of um, are working with families, um, whether they're dealing with concerns or complaints, or even they want to like give them some good news, which is, which is not done often enough, in my opinion, sure, um, sure. they may not be well-versed in EL education. They may not be well-versed in what the civil rights of these students are. They may not be well-versed in whatever data tools that are, that are using. Um, and if, if they don't, if they're not well-versed in, in any or all of those things, you know, that, that can certainly have ramifications. Um, so what do they need to be able to access or what information do they need? What skills do they need to be able to communicate with families and parents um, in a, in a way that, that makes sense to them to present the information to them in the right way? I know it's a kind of a large question, but if you could take a stab at that, that'd be great. Well, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about the task of, you know, burning the candle at both ends, so to speak, right? So your school may be working on some of their own goals and objectives around how to best support this population, but you also have the, the additional task of including parents in that process. And so, I've encouraged um, the schools that I that I've been working closely with is just to simply ask their parents. Let's not make any assumption, right? I mean, this is the age of technology and electronic communication. Um, what kinds of questions are we asking? You know, as part of our school survey to gather information about the school community or parents in the community, and then are those resources in multiple languages? I mean, I went to one school district's uh, website, and the calendar is 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 downloadable, and you can you know it's publicly visible, but it's in English. When I go to another school district, they'll have their school cal- calendar 
publicly visible and downloadable, but they have it available in multiple languages. And I'm thinking that's being, you know, responsive, right? Because when you're talking about an early release day, a teacher work day, a holiday, how are we assuring that everybody knows what those things are? Mm-hmm. And so are we asking parents and families, are we asking parents and families in a language they can understand what are we doing with the information that we collect and are we being, um, you know, rea- uh, you know, positively reacting to, to what their needs and wants are? Because when we talk about complaints, I'm thinking, hmm, how could that have been avoided, right? It's not that we can never have a complaint, but how can we reduce complaints and are all the complaints centered around one particular area? And if so, how can we address that quickly? We don't need to take a half a school year to know that perhaps parents need the school calendar, you know, available in their native language. Yeah, for sure. I mean, hundred percent, you know, and, and, and I'm glad you mentioned kind of the two, two examples one district doesn't have it and one does. And the one that does, you know, is going to have more engagement. I mean, yeah. it takes a lot more than just a translated calendar. I think you'd agree, but that's a step in the right direction. And that's Absolutely. being, that's being responsive um, to, to the needs of, of, uh, of families. You know, one thing, um, when you, when you said you just have to ask, you know, get information out there. One thing that someone said to me, I don't remember who it was. I was just trying to think about it, but it didn't come to me. Uh, I think it was during one of these podcast episodes. I've done so many now that I've kind of lost track, but, uh, somebody mentioned to me, you know, the best question that you can ask to a parent, um, is, or, or a member of a child's uh, family is what dreams and aspirations do you have for your child? And that is one of those things that, you know, it's applicable for anybody. If you can get that across and you can sort of, you know, get information back from, from, from parents, um, you have put yourself in a place where you've established good faith. Um, and then all the other information that goes out, whether it's, um, you know, you have to have a difficult conversation, it makes it so much easier. So I just thought I'd mention that. I know it doesn't really have to do specifically with calendars and translate, but I think that's one of those things that, uh, that is a nice place to start. It is, it is. And I guess my next question to a parent would be, and, and what does your child's or how is your child's schooling experiences, you know, aligned to that? Because that's the big picture, right? Here's what my dreams and aspirations are for my child. But we've got, we may have a long way to get there. So mm-hmm. what, what, how can this partnership help to get your child there, right? So I would want to know, here's the ultimate goal. And then how do you envision us working together to help move your child to their goal? So you're right. There's um, kind of the big pieces. And then what can we do? The, the small steps that will help move you closer to that. That is definitely important. Yeah. And that's a really logical way to look at it. And I can't help but think that's like part of the, what you mentioned earlier, which is that where, you know, where you were, where are you now and where do you want to go? Just, just like zoomed into one particular student, right? Yes. yes. Yeah. So that's great. All right. Well, as we wrap up here, Anne, I wanted to ask you um, if there's a book or other resource that has influenced you either personally or professionally that you'd like to share. We have this growing book list um, that uh, that is thanks to all of our podcast guests. Sure. So I actually have two. So I'm going to go with one from my childhood. It was actually a little golden book um, or that's who publishes it now. Um, the author uh, is John Stone, and he was one of the original um, crew members on Sesame Street. And the book is another. Mo- uh, the book is um, the monster at the end of this book, starring lovable furry old Grover. And Grover starts the book out by telling you that there's a monster at the end of the book, and not to turn the page. And as you turn the pages, he's working with 
rope and bricks and cement to try to get you not to turn the page. But ultimately, as the reader, you're turning the page and lo and behold, he is the monster at the end of the book. And so looking back now as an adult, I'm thinking that book is about um, facing our own fears and perhaps getting out of our own way because he was the monster at the end of the book that he was warning us about. So I think that book has um, kind of shed some new light on as we navigate new experiences in life. Um, not to be afraid, embrace the challenge. What's on the next page? That's exciting. And then the another book that I'm just now finishing up is a co-edited volume. Um, this work grew out of a project I was on last year and out of frustration, right? Um, you know, wonderful things happen. Yeah. So I am co-editing a book with Dr. Awad Ibrahim, um, Black Immigrants in the United States Essays on the Politics of Race, Language, and Voice. And that's uh, published by Peter Lang. And so I just um, am really honored to be um, someone that can help add to the immigrant narrative, um, modern day, modern day immigrant narrative, um, and, and provide space for some groups of immigrants that aren't, aren't usually included in the, in those experiences. And so if you are a black person or you subscribe to the identity of black here in the United States, what is that like for you if you were not born in this country and maybe you're learning English as a new language as well. And so we have 11 chapters of just phenomenal stories of students. And I have a, a one author who wrote her own story. Um, so it's just been wonderful. And I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing that um, be part of the resources that teachers can refer to um, in January of 2020. Amazing. Well, I think it's safe to say that you've given us books on two uh, very important ends of the spectrum from, yes. from from childhood, but with lessons we can still use today to something uh, certainly a, a lot more serious, but just as useful and just as profound. Um, and so thank you for that. And I have to say that anytime anyone mentions Sesame Street, I know that it's going to be high quality. They've just been doing amazing <laughs> things forever. It's unbelievable yeah, absolutely, absolutely. what they do for children and what they've done. Um, it's It's remarkable. So thanks for mentioning both of those. And how can people learn more about the work that you're doing? You're, you're finishing this book now. There's lots of other things available. I learned a lot about you just by kind of um, people in the office who knew you, but, but I'd love to be able to steer people toward uh, anything that they can find of yours. Thank you. Thank you. That's so helpful. So um, my website is A. Cooper Consulting, um, and you'll be able to find out a little bit more about me and the work that I do. Um, I also have another book coming out next year published by um, Corwin. It's a book for school leaders, and it is, lo and behold, framed around the top 10 civil rights violations for English learners. And I essentially walk school leaders through what those violations are, how to avoid them, but more importantly, you know, to build their capacity, right? It's easy mm -hmm. to avoid something when you're able to make um, some informed decisions. So I'm excited about that project as well. Also, um, tentatively planned to be released um, spring of 2020. So it's been a busy 2019 in preparation for new resources that um, hopefully will be very useful for the field. Yeah, definitely. And I'm glad you mentioned that last book because I feel like we just barely scraped the circus, the circus, we just barely scraped the surface of this, uh, of this important topic. And again, like to, to wrap up here where we started, it's one that I feel like you know, we, it doesn't get enough attention. It's, it's in that first slide, as you mentioned, or somebody mentions it, but it's not, um, it's not yet uh, front and center. But I think with the work that you're doing, 
um, it will be. So I just want to thank you for coming on to Highest Aspirations. And more importantly, thank you for all of the amazing work that you've done. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to share my work. And again, my website, acooperconsulting.com. You can find my contact information. And as always, I appreciate the partnership with Elevation. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.